Welcome to the Best Boss Ever podcast. I'm your host, Christine LaPerriere, president of Leader in Motion. On this show, we're going to gossip about the best boss you ever had. We're going to hear stories about things that they did that helped you feel valued, helped you feel engaged, and really inspired you. We want to hear about the bosses that changed the way you look at everything. If you want to hear more, join me at christinelaperriere.com and sign up for our newsletter, The Whip. Today I have on Jason Gart. Jason, I'm going to ask, introduce yourself for everybody. Yeah, sure. I'm a vice president at History Associates Incorporated in Rockville, Maryland, and I work in the HAI legal business segment of our company. Amazing. Thank you, Jason. And so Jason had a best boss in mind, and I'm just excited for the opportunity to talk to you today, Jason. I love when people have someone that comes to mind when they think of who their best boss ever was. Sure, sure. So today I'd like to talk about uh, my current boss, Beth Mazur, who is CEO of History Associates Incorporated. And this is the fifth anniversary of her time here at the company. And it's it's been really fascinating. I've been at the company for 17, going on 17 years. We're a privately owned company, a company that employs about 50 people. We've been around for going on 40, founded in 1981, so going over 40 years. And for us, Beth has become this transformational leader, this leader that has taken it from this family-owned, very provincial company into this growing company that is now doing some really neat things. Transformational leader. It's interesting because a lot of people aspire for that, but it's neat to be called that. That means that you're seeing her create that transformation. Yeah. And and that's what's so exciting about the time right now at, at HAI. So again, you know, we're a small company. None of us, and it's important as I set this conversation up to say that none of us come out of business schools. So none of us have MBAs. We have MAs, so masters in liberal arts, uh, PhDs, you know, subject matter experts. So we're not business people. We're professional historians. The company HAI is essentially a, a research and analysis firm. We do the the group I work in does research and support of litigation, crisis management, regulatory issues. So we do research. We're typically hired by Fortune 100 and 500 companies, law firms, government agencies, in some cases sovereigns, and we do very very high end boutique original research to help them in in various litigation crisis management situations. We also do museum exhibits. We also help companies preserve their their records. We've worked with this with the Smithsonian. We've done massive archival projects. So none of us, however, have business degrees. And and this is really what's interesting about having someone like Beth come in, which has really transformed us into more of a professional business-oriented company. And in ways that that can sometimes be, you know, unexpected, right? Bringing in infrastructure to allow us to, you know, have those tools to to succeed and things of that sort. But then also mentoring the staff, which again, we don't have business degrees. So I, I have a PhD in history. You know, my last business class was probably maybe freshman year. So that's been really fun. And, and we can talk a little bit deeper about some of this transformation that we've been seeing. But, you know, it, what one thing that's what's really been great is that for a professional services firm to see that growth and see that change over time. That's amazing. And so, and it makes a lot of sense. It sounds like everybody's got this extraordinary amount of specialized knowledge, but just like you said, not instinctively business knowledge. So first of all, when did she take the opportunity to lead the business? 
So um, it was a nationwide search, I guess, right before the pandemic. So about about a year, she, she joined January of 2019, I believe, which is in itself, right, an interesting t- time to join. It was a nationwide search undertaken by the board of directors of the company. The people that had been involved with the company had been here since the founding of the company. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, you know, not a lot of business training, not a lot of professional business training. And then th- there was a desire to kind of look outside of the company for, for some new leadership. They found Beth and brought Beth on. And really the the neat thing about the, the job search was she actually came from one of our competitors, oh. but she had actually been at the company, that was kind of like her first job. Her first job was at a competitor firm that had since kind of merged out of existence. And then she had done a lot of other things. So she's professionally trained as a, as a research librarian. She comes out of that field and then had done a lot of other different things, worked with some of our other competitors. And the desire was to see, was to bring in someone that had kind of a fresh perspective about how we sell our services. So the managers of the company did not have the chance to interview her as part of the process. And that was for various reasons. But I think they wanted to do it kind of out there and then not really have the input of the managers. And that, again, that was for various reasons. First thing I said to Beth was, I think they conned you. Because (laughs) there was a view of what the organization... So we had been essentially without a CEO for about two years. The prior person had left. There was a board member that came in and helped lead the organization kind of at a part-time manner. But for all practical purposes, we'd been left left alone. And, you know, I, I think the view, and I will say this for almost any organization, and I don't think this is a, a bad thing to say. I think there's always the view of the organization from the board side of the organization. There's always the view of the organization from the shareholder side. And I, I am actually a shareholder of the company and have been. Right continue to be. And then there's a view of the organization from, say, the employee side, right? And so she had a very good understanding of the organization from the board side, right? Because they were the people that undertook the, the job search. I don't think she had a full understanding of the bizarre nature of the firm from the employee side. And she embraced it. And the first thing she said to me was, are you are you joking? Like, and and Beth is funny because she doesn't really understand much of my humor, or at least plays that she doesn't. But you know, later on that week, she was like, "Wow, you're right." I mean, this is, and what she well, unfortunately what she found was an organization that was really in need of transformation, right, on many different levels. And I will also say that you know, because none of us are business people, right? It's important to understand that all of us here, because we've worked with thousands of clients and work in this in this very, very boutique niche field, there are right. not a lot of competitors. There's not a lot of other companies like us out there. Our company has always been kind of the gold standard, right? We've survived multiple business ups and downs. We've written very, very impressive books over time. We've worked on some very stellar projects. So our company... History is essentially back to Three Mile Island when the four founders were asked to do a history of Three Mile Island as it was happening. And that became published as a book, was very important study. And we began working for the Department of Energy and doing declassification review. And so we've always done a lot of impressive projects. And I think because of that, most of myself and my peers are very much like yeah, we know what we're doing. We're very good at at what we do professionally. Now, you can be terrific at what you're doing professionally. You may be an amazing historian, write 
very well, able to find documents any place and, and do that or, or create an amazing museum exhibit and, and mount that. And But we're also a business and we also need to make money and we also need to be profitable. And that's really right. what, what Beth has kind of transformed us into thinking more about how we professionalize the infrastructure of the company. So that means, you know, making sure that we understand what type of things we need to build out, sales and marketing, what type of collaborations we need to develop, you know, how we adequately price our services. I think she found an organization that devalued its services in the sense of wasn't pricing our research analysis services at the level that that they should have been priced. We went through multiple price increases over the five years, especially the first two years going into the right. With absolutely no pushback from any of our clients. In fact, our clients continue to say, wow, you know, the value you bring to our litigation, having you being specialists and going out and trying to find these documents for us and then finding them is, is just amazing. We we worked on a project that actually we we were able to find material that helped them win a $1 billion settlement. Wow. B billion. We find the materials that help these attorneys, you know, win their lawsuits and really we were pricing our services too low. We were taking on too many projects that really were not a core service for us. So we're very much have, have kind of instituted the um, Tiffany effect, which is we're Tiffany's, you know, here's our rates. If you can't afford it, don't want to afford it, or don't think you want a Tiffany ring, you know, go go find someplace else. There's other vendors out there. Most of the people that hire us are top practice groups across the country. So law firm practice groups that are typically AM Law 50, maybe AM Law 500. They're used to using high-end vendors. And really, Beth has helped us professionalize that and understand that it's okay to turn away business because what Mm -hmm. we do is serve the best clientele and work on some of the high-profile projects. So that's been very much game-changing for us. And Jason, really quick, so I know already from my own experience, putting in, for example, price increases can make people who have been in the business for a long time extremely uncomfortable. So can you tell me a little bit about like, what's the emotional response when Beth comes in and says, first thing we're going to do, she's explaining to you kind of how we're rethinking the way we do business and rethinking our pricing, especially. I mean, I know a lot of people that would have a lot of heartburn over that. Yeah, and so great question, right? And so I think it's important to talk a little bit about Beth. Her style of leadership is probably the way you would classify it, right? So very low-key. She's the person that's pushing the others out to center stage, um, which works very well when you have a bunch of people that have PhDs, MAs, that you know are, are like being out there with stakeholders and talking with clients. She's very much also about empowerment. The conversation did not start with, we're raising rates and here's the new rate sheet. Mm-hmm. Conversation began, wow, you all did an amazing job on that project for, for XYZ Law Firm. I mean, the stuff you found made their case. What did they say when you asked them if it was useful? We reach out, you saved us. That was exactly what, what we needed. You know, and this is the client. You're like a magician. I could not believe you were able to find those documents so quickly. So the conversation was, look at how much value you're bringing to those to those clients and look at how much they appreciate you. Are you underselling yourself? Do you think they would have paid 20% more, 50% more for the same material? 
And it became a conversation internally about, well, you know what, maybe maybe we are kind of underselling ourselves. You know, maybe we could have done the same exact project and been 20% more profitable. And then the question is, well, do you think you're going to have pushback? We had traditionally raised our rates, you know, once a year, and it was very minimal. We had never had any pushback from there. Beth said, reach out to some of your clients you have a good relationship with that, you know, you can talk candidly with and, and ask them. First person I asked said, oh my God, you guys are so cheap. It's mm-hmm. embarrassing. That said, I, you know, we don't want you to double your rates, but we certainly sure. compared to others within the industry, you're under. And two other clients said pretty much the, the same thing. So that made it very easy. The argument internally was, well, Jason reached out to X and Y, and both of them were like, yeah, you know, we have your peer competitors are 25% more expensive. So what we did is we slowly did it over, I think it was an 18-month process where we slowly tiered up. We also, and one of the other things that has helped with some of this change is creating an advisory board for the company, for the service group I work in, which again is HAI legal. So we created this, I guess, about three years ago. We have a board, essentially shareholders and others, but what we did not have traditionally at the company was an advisory board for the service line. The arc of my conversations with my clients, and again, I've probably, I've been here 16, going on 17 years, I probably have run probably about 1,500 projects. And I will say that enormous amount of our business is repeat business. We have worked with the same firm, right. the same lawyers, year after year. They, you know, they're now partners. We worked with them when they were associates. We're now working with their associates and right. continue to come to us. However, the conversation, the arc of that conversation is always the same. Jason, Allison, terrific job on this. And you're about to say thank you. And they say, I have a new project for you. What do you know about? And so right. you have about 15 seconds to have a conversation about the weather or, you know, life in general. And then it's on to the next project. Oh, and by the way, this is urgent. So there's not a lot of conversation, just kind of banter conversation, right. in our interactions with our clients. Beth thought it would be great to create a legal advisory board where we could actually, you know, have conversations with our client base offline in a way that was focused on improving our service offerings, trying to better understand what's going on in the legal field, which again, none of us are attorneys. So we're not business people. We're not attorneys. We're historians that sell our business that have are, are essentially selling business services to attorneys, at least in my right. Right. So, you know, what are they, you know, what's going on in their world? So we reached out to six people. So our legal advisory group is not out there on our website. We meet twice a year. It's something that is totally for the benefit of us to help us strategize. Beth suggested that instead of, you know, we were thinking, do we do an honorarium? Do we, you know, how do we structure it? And, and Beth thought, you know what? have them select a charity or foundation of their choice and we'll give them all a $2,500 donation to that charity at the end of their two-year service, which has been terrific. And these are top lawyers that are probably making $1,000, $2,000 an hour. Twice a year, we meet for three hours to talk about kind of the challenges. This has been great because pricing was actually something that came up during one of our meetings, you know, what they're seeing as new areas of practice and how it aligns with research and analysis. So AI obviously is very big. Gen AI right. Is big for right. them right now. You know, they really want to understand, you know, how 
in five years, how will that change, you know, legal research? You know, this this great culture of of just trying to figure out how to do things better, more efficiently. Right. Really been something that I think we've been lucky to to achieve over these last five years. Amazing. So can I ask you a few more questions about that? Give me some more examples of what it's like to work with her. I love the way that she really pushed the professionals out in that customer facing seat, which I think is really cool. I also heard you say that she is heavy on mentorship. She's really transformed the way people think of pricing, but in a very, very interesting process, it feels like she she kind of made it your idea, right? In a lot of yeah. ways, she allowed you guys to come to the conclusion of finding that there was opportunity to, you know, increase pricing and become more professionalized in that way. And this advisory board, again, so it's like she's not leading it. She's putting all the pieces in place, which are enabling it. So there's a lot of interesting things I'm hearing in these stories. Give me some other examples of what Beth's leadership looks like. I think you hit it right there. So it's it's empowerment of us. You read in the Wall Street Journal, The Economist, about the CEO at the center of the circus. We are so far different from that. Beth is very much, I want to push you all out there. You know, it's your success. It's your ideal. And you know, now I will say that that comes from trust. So there's a lot of trust. For the first couple of years, it's it's kind of hard to get a read on someone. So Beth doesn't give a lot. You know, there's not a lot of kind of personal information. And, and again, in a good way, right? So mm-hmm. it's, it's huge, you know, we're colleagues and and we know we all have families and we do things. And But there's not a lot of like, oh, Beth, tell us a story about your past. There's not a lot of things like that. So right. also, she also came on. So we're we're here in the office for, you know, six months, nine months, and then we all go away for a year and disappear into the pandemic and we're all hiding under our beds. Yes. So one of the initiatives that we began was we wanted to expand out and bring on board some additional experts, testifying experts. So my former boss, Mike Reese, had retired right before the pandemic. And he was someone that we would slot into some of the expert engagements. And the desire was we need we need to fill that spot. For several years, there was a the first person that Beth worked with was um, a well-known historian, a well-known environmental historian. She out in the West Coast, she had a company that had then been sold, but she continued to to essentially write books and do neat projects. So I had known her because she was a friend of someone that I had studied under and when I was in grad school, Beth. This was the person that gave Beth her first job. So we decided let's let's reach out and have dinner and see if she'd be interested in joining our organization as potentially a, a consultant, a principal consultant. And Beth, you know, Beth had kept in touch with this person, but I don't think she had seen her in at least 15 years. I had kept in touch with this person. I had certainly not seen her since the 2000s when I was in graduate school. Okay. So we all show up separately at the restaurant. And the first thing that this person says to Beth is, so how many children do you have? And Beth says, well, too, too many right now, but why do you ask? (laughs) And this person says, well, the thing I remember most about you is that you always wanted to have children. I, I, it was very sweet. One of the things about Beth is that she is very family centric, right? So, and I had seen that. But for this person to then ask, you know, how many how many kids do you end up having? It was just hilarious. And it's it, it just <laughs> a very nice start to, to the relationship. Right, right. The the other 
funny story I will tell you is that coming out of the pandemic, one of the things that we decided to do was we wanted to start getting out to conferences as soon as possible, right? Mm-hmm. We had all been virtual. And so Beth says, Jason, you know, let's let's start going to some of the environmental conferences, the ABA meetings, there's they're coming out. And this is right, right as, you know, we're we all are vaccinated. Right. Um, you know, it's it's you know, six weeks after those vaccinations, and there's the conferences are just opening up. So as a as kind of a, a joke, I'm like, well, Beth, I don't like being hugged. <laughs> and 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 she's like, Jason, you're not gonna. It's fine, not a problem. Everyone's gonna still be wearing masks. You're not gonna. I don't think you, no one's gonna hug. <laughs> so I get to the first conference, and I mean, this is seriously, this is the time period where you're still the virtual joint in person conference. And right. I'm, you know, I get on a plane, I go to Nashville, and get there and you now see people that you have only interacted with on video for the last year and a half. I must have been hugged 10, 15 times. <laughs> it's I so remember after, that. <laughs> so after the first time, I I'm texting her back, Beth, they're hugging me. You know she's like, sorry, Jason. I'm sorry about the hugs. Yes. <laughs> she, she actually did. She actually did. And then I get back and my colleagues are like, Jason, I heard you got hugged. <laughs> Not um, mugged, hugged. Hugged, <laughs> yes. not mugged. Right. Yes. So again, you know, I'm not sure where we're going with that, except right. that her personality is very much where it's, you know, there, there's a lot of trust there. There's trust that right. we have, her abilities, her trust in us. And then in mentorship, right? She she just really loves the position. She just loves the organization. So we have people that have been at this company a very long time. We have people that have retired out of the organization. And it's neat to see her embrace that and just kind of, we talk about bleeding HAI, that we're just totally now immersed in in HAI. And, you know, I will say, so she, so one of the things that, one of the great things that that she had, she, she has a PMP. So there's that you know, expertise in project management. I think that, you know, looking, looking back, I think that if, if I was going to do it over again, I would want to, you know, get some more expertise in management and organizational kind of, you know, how you run an organization. I think that's one of the, one of the continued challenges of the organization. I think the empowerment is just very important. So we have weekly management meetings where we, you know, all the service line directors and heads of the organization meet for 30 minutes, 45 minutes, just to talk about, you know, what, what's going on, what are the new things that, that, that we have to do. Those meetings, there's not a lot of decision-making at those meetings. Those meetings are a way to kind of talk about the week, talk about what's the upcoming week. Decision-making in the organization is very quick. It's very dynamic. And that's very empowering. So myself and my colleague, Allison, and the other project managers, we have very much carte blanche to do what we think is important. And we often are asked by clients, can we field 10 researchers on the West Coast next week, right? And they typically, you know, they expect an answer on the call. We can't wait until, well, let me check. So we have the ability to, you know, make very fast-paced decisions. We had a long-term client, the law firm that we've worked with, again, 15 years, and they call us and they want us to do, they're interested in doing some Freedom of Information Act requests. And so we do a lot of uh, FOIA requests for, for clients. It's something that that we've done for many years. In this case, it was on a national security matter. 
So it was FOIA, FOIA requests to some agencies in the inter, in, intelligence space. Mm-hmm. We haven't done a lot of that. And, and it was kind of a, a strange ask. So for many years, we did work on the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, helping to kind of reconstruct contractual agreements that had occurred. And so this this client came to us from that practice group and, and right. this need. When they explained to us what the matter was, it was wow, okay. And and it was pretty, pretty, pretty interesting. And they then said to us, you know, we're doing this pro bono. We're not charging this client because we feel that this is kind of an important matter that right. we're going to just help out. So we offered immediately to also provide our services pro bono. We had never done anything like that before. We had never provided pro bono services. I mean, maybe once 20 years ago, but sure. that's not typically. So we get off the call and I'm on the call with the director of litigation and some other project manager. And it just seemed to be the right thing to do. It, it just struck us as the right thing to do. So we go in and we tell Beth and we walk her through this and the first thing she says is pro bono, right? Even before we had to, right? which is just, you know, again, there's this kind of everyday interaction of just knowing where the person stands, where their moral kind of moral rudder is and how we work together. And that's, that's really neat. That is really neat. That's been, that's been really a lot of fun. And then the firm, the firm belief that it's okay to make mistakes, and I think, you know, if you talk to Beth, she will say that, you know, in the last five years, there's things that we decided to do that just was not the right thing to do at the right time. Sure. As, you know, things that I've done and, and other service lines. And there's not a lot of, you know, there's not a lot of, you know, we don't rehash a lot of, we make mistakes, we move on. And that's, that is, I think that's probably a little bit a part of her optimism as a person where... I remember during the pandemic when we all disappear, you know, it's that March of 2020 and every office in America clears out. And, you know, we make an enormous amount of money from placing people at the National Archives all across the country, historical societies, state and local repositories. You know, people come in, they ask us questions. We go out throughout the world to do research. We send people to Europe. We send people all over. The National Archives was only open for 48 days during 2020. We, we were during the time we were, you know, when they were like the global supply chain has had, had shut down. Yeah. I was joking with my clients that the global archival supply chain had shut down. Yes. So we became very creative. We became very creative. And throughout that entire process, Beth is like, no, we're going to we're going to be just fine. And we were just fine. We thought of we thought of creative ways to do research. Our clients were very understanding that we could not get into the National Archives. Okay, you can't get in there. What else can you do? Where else can you go? We bought a lot of books and documents off of eBay and better books and and just began to think very, very creatively about how to do research. That optimism, you know, it's it's contagious, right? You're like, oh, it's okay that there's a global pandemic. We're going (laughs) to just be fine. We're going to be fine. We're going to be fine, and and we we ultimately were, and and we view and we actually did use that time to kind of rethink a lot of how we do things. One of which is staffing. So one of the challenges that that we always had at the old company was you needed to be at your desk. So when I came to this company, it was like you're in the building at your desk. We had one or two examples of people that remote worked, but it was just like there was the belief that you needed to be at your desk. Beth got here and 
started to be like, well, you know, you can guys can work from home. if It's okay. And the reason why was because we began to understand that if we allowed people to remote work, that opened up a much larger pool of creative talent, right? Absolutely. If you hire someone from California, they could work remotely. Right. So we had begun doing that prior to the pandemic. So my colleague, the director of litigation, she's in Orlando. We have other people all over the country. So that that was very, that again is that trust, you know, that trust of, you know, I, I trust that you're right. working for us. That enabled us when the pandemic actually came, we actually already had this, you know, kind of infrastructure where we could work remotely. And if people wanted to do that, they could do it. And now fast forward, it's, you know, it's opened up everything. We, you know, we now have people all over the country, which also makes a lot of our services cheaper for for our clients. We're more cost effective because if there's something in California, we already have a team out there that can do that work. Amazing. That's great. Given this is such good information and I want to see if you have some leaders out there that are listening today and they're really trying to extract some practices from some of the great leadership that Beth has displayed in the last five years, how would you summarize those for them? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I think, you know, delegation, right? That the role of the CEO is ultimately to delegate. The leader of the company's job is to delegate to others. So that delegation is vital. You can only delegate, however, if you trust your management team if you trust your line managers, if you trust your creative talent, if you don't, you know, if you don't trust those people, they probably shouldn't be at the organization, right? And, and and that can be a hard thing to say. But I think, you know, delegation really is based on that trust. I think the other thing is the decisiveness, making sure that in professional services, when you work, when you sell your services to a, a law firm or a government agency or a Fortune 100 company, these are quick-paced organizations. So you have to be able to, you know, be able to move with that dynamic business to change quickly. To, mm-hmm. to my day is never. I have a list of things I I hope to do in a day. That's they never get done. There's always right. new clients, new people, new questions. Uh, new issues. I think optimism is a, is another thing, right? Things are not always going to go well. Business is hard. You know, we sell history. My dad likes to joke that, you know, we sell ice to Eskimos, right? <laughs> I mean, history is not like the core, core service you think. Right. Um, you feel like you're not on the hunt for it when you wake up in the morning. You're not like, exactly, I'm going to go buy some history. Exactly. So how do you sell that? You sell that by, you, you sell it by, well, you know, we, we help you, you know, what's your problem? Right. You know, tell me what your question is. What, what, what question would you, do you need to be answered to win this lawsuit, to win this case? What documents do you need? You know, right. what, what are the challenges that you're facing attorney today? And then we'll let, let us show you how historical research can either potentially help in some cases, maybe it may not help. And then I think celebrate and develop. So I think mm-hmm. celebrate because again, you know, Beth, she's not taking, she sees herself in the back, pushing us forward, celebrating the achievements of each of us. So when the marketing person told me that there was this podcast, Best Boss Ever, mm-hmm. I was, oh, that sounds pretty neat. Then I realized that it wasn't about me being the best boss ever, (laughs) that it was about 
potentially another boss I had who was the best boss ever, which yeah. I think speaks a little to bit to the personalities and egos we all have and how you really need to be the best boss ever if you're going to manage this kind of group of very, you know, very strange <laughs> academic scholars that are working in this kind of weird right. selling our services but really celebrate and, and develop the talent. So, you know, the infrastructure, building out the infrastructure, that means making sure that, you know, we can be geeky, right? The, mm -hmm. the us that are the historians and archivists and researchers, we can be as geeky as we want, but it's making sure we have the right finance people, the right marketing people, the right sales people, the right IT staff, the right HR people, all the infrastructure that allow us to just be that, you know, that professional services company. And that's where, you know, a small company, and, and I like to joke, and this is a joke I've used many times, a, a company that 40 years ago was found, founded by four underemployed historians. Yeah. And they were, they were, you know, four unemployed historians in the in the 80s. How do you take that and move that into now a company that's making $10 million a year? And has all of Amazing. that, you know, those 50, 60 staff members. Right. I love this. It's a really interesting, I see, you know, hundreds of different businesses in my world. I've been consulting for almost 20 years. And so it's just very interesting when I listen to this offering. It makes so much sense, but I would have never, I don't think I've ever heard of this before. So it's really Today, not only has it been a lot of fun to hear about Beth and all of her leadership and kind of hear about the challenges of the business, I think there's a lot of us out there that are like, how cool. I don't think we ever knew that yeah. there was a business out here that sold history to help. What I'm really hearing is it solves problems, like it solves problems. Historical detectives is kind of the term we use, but you're right, right. solvers. And and there's the challenge then, however, right? So so we consider ourselves applied historians. Okay, so we come mm -hmm. out of, come out of a field that trains you to write books and to get tenure at a university. There's no training, whatever, at all about how it is to to you know what if you go to work for a consultancy, and that's the real that's the real challenge. So as though you know if we were talking about Bain or McKinsey, it'd be a little bit different. Most of the profession does not go into Bain or McKinsey. Right. There's a very, very small portion that go out into this consulting field. To be successful, it needs to be professional. You need to understand those challenges of what it means to, to have that organizational structure. Amazing. And you're also talking about most of us are trained to you know write one book, not jump from topic to topic. Jason, thank you so much thank for you. this. This was so much fun. And um, I, like I said, I, I've gathered so much from today, kind of learning a lot about the business and Beth and all kinds of aspects of this um, very niche offering that, you know, you've been able to offer at HAI. So I think this is really cool. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for inviting me to, to speak with you today. It's been a lot of fun. If you want to hear more, join me at christinelaperriere.com and sign up for our newsletter, The Whip.